David may be king. He may have successfully fought off any pretenders and defeated any number of enemy nations. But his biggest enemies aren't from outside his kingdom. They are his lack of self-control and his children. In this episode, David is about to embark on one of the Bible's most famous love affairs, while in the next, his own son commits a crime so hideous that its repercussions affect the monarchy to the very end of David's reign. These are some of the darkest pages of the Old Testament, but also some of its most gripping. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible Episode 71, The Lustful and the Lost. Hello fellow Bible travellers, it's lovely to have you back. If you're new, that's lovely too, you've jumped in at a good time. We're about to hear one of the more salacious of the Bible's stories, and not one that often gets an in-depth hearing during church services. But this isn't a church service. This is the Bible in all its glory, so to speak, including the bits which Christians would rather you didn't read. It's interesting how, over the centuries, Christians have curated a publicly acceptable Bible, censoring any passages deemed too blue for God-fearing ears. That's not to say that these don't remain in the Bible, they're just never spoken about or read out loud in churches. Instead, churchgoers are fed a wholesome diet of uplifting prophecy, tales from the life of Jesus, and instructional letters written by Paul and other first-century Christians. Meanwhile, the Holy Bible podcast leaves no verse unturned. I think it's better that way. And it means you get stories like a naked bathing beauty being watched lustfully by a horny king. Soon after David brings the Ark to Jerusalem and Mephibosheth into his home, Nahash, the king of neighbouring Ammon, dies. Wanting to keep the peace, David sends a delegation to the king's son to offer sympathy. He may have been a pagan Canaanite, but David was on good terms with Nahash and wants his son Hanun to know how sorry he is. However, Hanun's paranoid advisers convince their new leader that David's sympathy mission is a ruse and that the envoys he has sent are spies, hoping to gain intel on Ammon so that they can plan an attack. With Hanun now certain that David has sinister intentions, his envoys are sent back to Jerusalem with their beards half-shaven and their garments cut off at the buttocks, a humiliating insult that is guaranteed to draw Israel into a fight even if none was planned in the first place. I almost call this episode Buttocks and Beards in honour of this. Fully aware of how his men cannot return to Jerusalem without risking ridicule, David sends outriders to divert them to Jericho where their beards can grow back and their clothing can be replaced or repaired. The garment worn by Old Testament men is called a simla and is made from wool or flax. Cutting this off at hip height would not only expose the buttocks but the genitals too. Realising that they have now started something which they need to finish, the Ammonites hastily assemble a mercenary army from the Aramean kingdoms of Zobar, Maka and Tob, amassing around 33,000 soldiers. David has the entire Israelite army at his disposal and Joab marches them into Ammon. 
Here, the Ammonites draw up battle lines at the gate of their city, most likely Rabbah, while their hired armies wait out in open country. Realising that he now has enemy soldiers in front and behind, Joab deploys his elite fighters to push on into Ammon, while everyone else turns and fights the mercenaries at their rear guard. If either enemy proves too strong, then the Israelites must regroup to fight against it. In a speech reminiscent of Henry V or William Wallace, Joab urges his men to fight bravely, quote, for our people and the cities of our God. He reassures them that God will make sure the battle has the outcome that pleases him, then launches into combat. The fighting doesn't last long. Joab takes on the mercenaries who realise that defending themselves against such an overwhelming force just isn't worth the money, and run away rather than engage in battle. When the troops back in Ammon see the rest of their army fleeing, they run too, disappearing back behind their city gates. It's a disappointingly unsatisfying skirmish for readers who like a good battle, and Joab returns to Jerusalem. The fighting isn't over though. The Aramean troops regroup, and it appears that they are no longer in the pay of Ammon, but are fighting because they have just been humiliated by Israel. Hadadezer, king of Damascus, calls in backup from beyond the Euphrates, and the battle scales up dramatically. David returns with the army of Israel, crossing the Jordan to square up to the Aramean army, which again loses its nerve. As the men run for their lives a second time, David kills 700 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers. The defeat is so emphatic that any king who was previously loyal to Hadadezer now makes peace with Israel, and the Arameans make a mental note never again to help the Ammonites. According to the second book of Samuel, springtime is when kings go to war, and so David sends Joab at the head of an army to punish the Ammonites, as they have yet to pay for humiliating the men he sent to offer his sympathies to Hunan. The campaign is a success. The Ammonites are destroyed, and Joab's army besieges its capital, Rabbah. National feel-good is dialed up to ten. Israel has not been in a position like this since the time of Joshua, some 500 years earlier. Its leader is strong, its army invincible, and times are good. It really is David's to mess up, which, thanks to his uncontrollable lust for a married woman, he does almost immediately. Here goes. David has remained in Jerusalem during the campaign against Ammon. One day, after a sleep, he walks onto the roof of his palace. At the same time, the attractive young wife of one of his army generals decides to take a bath. From his vantage point, the king sees more than he should, and he likes what he sees. As if having multiple wives isn't already enough for him, fire burns in David's royal loins, and he determines that the girl in the bath must be his. Even though he learns that she is married to a soldier in his army, David doesn't hesitate in inviting the woman into his royal bedchamber, where the couple sleep together. The woman's name is Bathsheba, and there is a chance that the attraction is mutual. Had Bathsheba not wanted anything to do with David, she had the perfect excuse. She was already married. David had no history of stealing wives. He took Michal from her husband, but only because she was taken away from him by Saul and handed to another man. 
Abigail only became his wife after her own husband Nabal died. There is also a chance that Bathsheba knew that the king would be able to see her as she bathed. Was this a honey trap? A play to seduce a more powerful husband? We'll never know. Fans of the Leonard Cohen classic Hallelujah will be interested to know that the lyric, You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew her, is a reference to Bathsheba. Ironically, Bathsheba is described as being in the process of purifying herself after having her period, and so is willing to obey some Jewish laws, just not the one about adultery. What might be a one-off or the start of an illicit affair suddenly becomes much more serious when Bathsheba discovers that she is pregnant. What follows can only be described as the low point of David's reign. He quickly summons Bathsheba's warrior husband Uriah back from the front in the deluded hope that the man will miss his wife so much that they will have sex, allowing Uriah to believe that the child is his. They may only pop in and out of the Bible like casual day-trippers, but the Hittite nation to which Uriah belongs rules one of the most powerful empires that the Near East has ever known. The rise of this warlike nation begins in around 1600 BC and reaches a peak around 1400 BC, some 400 years before David's rule. The Hittites are a ruthless bunch of warriors whose kings are revered as gods and their empire covers an area corresponding with most of modern-day Turkey, reaching as far as Lebanon. David has Uriah brought to him and the men chat about the siege and the morale of the soldiers before the king sends his warrior back to his house with a gift. But instead of going home, Uriah spends the night at the gates of David's palace with David's servants. Alarmed that things are not going to plan, David finds Uriah the next day and asks him why he didn't go home. Unfortunately for the king, this particular soldier is a paragon of virtue and fairness. The ark is in a tent, he says. Israel's army is in tents. Joab and the rest of Uriah's division are in tents. How then can he sleep in his own bed? For his plan to work, David must get Uriah into bed with Bathsheba, and he persuades him to remain in Jerusalem for one more night. The men eat and drink together, and even though Uriah is inebriated, he again takes his map to the door of the palace and sleeps among the servants. David is now in this too deep, and can only see one way out of his problem. He must kill Uriah, but not let it look like murder. Frantic that he is about to be outed as an adulterer, David sends Uriah back to Rabbah with a letter to Joab, ordering him to send the soldier into the thick of the fighting. Joab is told that once the battle is at its most fierce, the rest of the army is to draw back from Uriah, leaving him exposed. Joab has no idea why David has it in for this particular soldier, and to his shame he carries out David's orders. Uriah is one of a number of Israelite casualties killed in the intense fighting at Rabbah. Covering for his king, Joab sends an account of the battle back to Jerusalem and warns the messenger that the news might make David angry. Joab suggests to the messenger that the king may criticise the decision to fight so close to the wall where troops are vulnerable to arrows and other missiles from above. Back in the time of the judges, Gideon's rogue son is crushed to death when a millstone is dropped from the walls of a city which he is besieging. Should David ask about this, the messenger must let him know that Uriah is dead. 
Joab can't let the messenger's main news be about Uriah, as this would blow the king's cover, and so the information that Uriah has died must therefore be tagged on like a kind of appendix, on the off chance that the king remembers the warrior or needs to be informed of his heroism. David's official message back to the front is philosophical. War kills men on both sides, he says, before urging Joab to push on with the siege and destroy the city. Whether she is genuinely sad or just going through the motions, Bathsheba mourns her dead husband. After the grieving is over, she joins the royal harem and has a son, but the incident remains a dark stain on David's rule. Readers are told that God is displeased and the killing of Uriah has repercussions for Israel after David dies. Bible fans are quick to point out that David breaks all ten of the Ten Commandments, or, to use bowling terminology, a complete strike. The obvious ones are adultery, sleeping with Bathsheba, stealing, she was married to Uriah, and murder, he had Uriah killed. He also coveted Bathsheba and lied by masking his reasons for sending Uriah to the front, which is five already. You could also say he made lust his god, six, dishonoured his parents by his behaviour, seven, and took God's name in vain by abusing his status as God's representative on earth, which is eight. That leaves making graven images and not keeping the Sabbath. There's an argument that the image of Bathsheba naked in her bath remained engraved on his soul until he acted on it, and that all future Sabbaths were defiled by the king's ongoing adultery. David knows that he has done wrong, and the impact of this is brought home when a close advisor tells him that his crime of passion will not go unpunished by God. After David has fallen for Bathsheba and conspired to have her husband killed, the prophet Nathan receives what he interprets as a message from God. We met Nathan in the previous episode, and he tells David the story of a rich man who owns many sheep and a poor man who has a single lamb. This lamb lives with the family, sleeps in the man's arms, and is like a baby daughter to him. One day, a traveller comes to stay with the rich man, and, rather than feed him one of his own sheep, the rich man kills the poor man's lamb. David is appalled at the injustice in the story. The rich man should be put to death for his inhumanity, he rages. At this point, Nathan drops his bombshell. David is the rich man in the story. He then delivers what he claims is a message from God that makes uncomfortable listening for David. God has made him king, he says. He has given him Saul's wives. On top of his own tribe of Judah, he has given him the whole of Israel, and had he asked for more, he would have been given it. Now calamity will come his way. For his complicity in the death of Uriah, David demonstrated that he despises God. The Ammonites in Rabbah may have killed the man, he says, but David might as well have been holding the sword. Because of this, conflict will remain forever in David's family, Nathan tells him. For taking Bathsheba in secret, his own wives will be taken from him. They will be given to someone who he is close to, who will sleep with them in public, an almost unimaginable humiliation for a king. Rather than throw his toys out of the pram, David is immediately contrite and accepts his punishment, apparently believing that he is about to die. 
However, there is a reprieve, but a grim one. God has already removed David's sin, Nathan tells him, and he will live. However, the son born to Bathsheba will die. Soon after this, the tiny child becomes sick. Believing that he can somehow reverse God's decision, David begs him to spare his son, fasting and spending the nights in sackcloth while sleeping on the ground. Despite attempts by senior members of the royal household to make him get up and eat, he refuses. The child survives barely a week, and David's aides have no idea how to break the news to him. The king was at a low enough ebb while his son was still alive, and may do something desperate when he finds out that his baby boy hasn't made it. David senses that something is up when he sees his attendants whispering. They confirm the bad news, at which he gets up, washes, changes out of his sacking, and worships God in the tabernacle. He then returns to the palace and eats. This makes no sense to his staff. When the child was alive, he spent his time fasting and crying, yet now he is dead, he seems back to normal. David is matter of fact. While there was a hope that his son might live, he fasted. Now that he is gone, there is no point. Fasting can't bring him back, he says. He then goes to comfort Bathsheba, and she conceives another son who they name Solomon, despite Nathan sharing God's apparent wish that the boy should be called Jedidiah, meaning loved by the Lord. Meanwhile in Rabbah, Joab's men have blocked off the water supply to the city. The commander summons David to come with backup to help with the siege. Rabbah is a huge city to conquer, and any general who succeeds in a victory of this scale will be immortalised in popular culture, the equivalent of Clive of India or Montgomery of Alamein. For David to stop Rabbah from being forever synonymous with Joab, he needs to come and join the troops here, the suggestion being that the king's mind has not been on the campaign against Ammon. Now back to his usual self, David arrives at the head of the Israelite army, and Rabbah falls. David places the king's massive gold crown on his own head, loots the city of all its treasure, and consigns its people to manual work within his own kingdom, as he does to all those living in Ammon's other towns. The episode with Bathsheba may be the first misstep in David's reign, but it has terrible consequences for him. The consolation for Israel is that this is not the beginning of a full-scale rebellion against God, and that David appears genuinely repentant and keen to make amends. He may be contrite, but a line has been crossed and the dice has been rolled. David is about to face the horrors of war within his own family. Punishment is about to come crashing down on him, and it is those closest and most precious to him who are about to be swept away. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. And if you like reading as much as you do listening, you can find Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible available on Amazon. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. 
And if you like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star rating? Thank you very much, and see you all next time.